Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are starting a new uh, sermon series that we are going to be in throughout the course of the summer. Uh, We've called this series Songs of the King, and what we are going to be looking at over the course of the summer is uh, what theologians call and biblical scholars call the Messianic Psalms. Uh, These are the Psalms uh, that are in the Old Testament that are particularly picked up by the New Testament writers and applied to Christ. One of the early uh, thinkers and leaders of the church, a man named Tertullian who lived in the first and second century, said this, uh, that David, King David, the author of many of the Psalms, sings of Christ uh, in the Psalms, and through the Psalms, Christ himself sings to us. Right? Many of the Psalms are given as a picture of who the Messiah, who the great king would be. And the New Testament authors quote no other book more often than they quote the Psalms to tell us who Jesus is and what he's about and what he offers us. And so we are going to look at these Psalms uh, in order to hopefully gain, gain a clearer picture of who Jesus is and a new language to praise and worship him. And so this morning we are in Psalm uh, 2. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is uh, a big question. This is uh, one of the biggest and deepest questions that we can ask about our world. Why is it the way that it is? Why are nations and peoples the way that they are? One of the things I love about the Psalms is that the psalmists ask big questions. The psalmists ask deep questions, and they seem to hold out hope that those deep questions that we often prefer to avoid, that if we ask them, and we ask them before God, can actually lead us. We don't need to be afraid of those questions, because they can lead us to worship. That's what the psalms essentially are, is a book of prayer and worship. And so the psalmists show us that these deep and big questions can actually open to us a deeper relationship with God. 
One of my favorite little books uh, is uh, a book by a poet named Rainer Maria Rolke called Letters to a Young Poet. And he wrote this. Uh, He was a German poet writing to a young, aspiring poet. He says, I want to beg you as much as I can, dear sir, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a foreign tongue. Love the questions themselves. Right? We don't have to be afraid of the questions that sometimes lead us to doubt or that we're not sure have easy answers. But those questions can be, as he says, doors to a locked room. They can open up to show us something wonderful. Here are some of the questions that the psalmist asks throughout the psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Right? That's the inner question. Soul, why, why am I in despair? Why am I downcast? Why am I experiencing in my inner life something that I can't quite get a handle on? Or how about this one? What is man that you are mindful of him? Right, this is the question of human significance in a massive universe. God in the midst of this giant universe, galaxies upon galaxies, billions of stars. What do I matter? What is man, what is woman that you care about us, that you're aware of us? The question of existence. That's Psalm 8 uh, that we'll be looking at next week. How about this one? How long, O Lord, will you be at a distance forever? Right? That's the question of God's seeming absence in our suffering. When we cry out and he doesn't seem to answer, when we reach for him and we can't seem to find him, how long? How long will you be this distant? And then in today's, why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. This is a question about the state of the world, right? A world in which people, men and women, live in a state of competition with one another over absolutely everything, where our relationships with one another are marked uh, by contempt, by violence, by lust, by rage, by competition for limited resources, right? It marks our individual lives. And then when peoples get together and make cultures and make nations, It describes our national relationships, right? That the relations between the peoples of the world are very often marked by greed and competition and warfare, right? This is the question, why is the world the way it is, right? It's the question that any sane person, uh, to the extent that a sane person watches the nightly news, uh, would want to, at some point after watching it for just a few minutes, go, why? Why is it like this? Why is our news filled with bad news? In this world, why, God, is the world the way that it is? Our struggles, the psalmists tell us, isn't just uh, against one another, but it's actually against God himself, right? That our rivalries with one another in the human family are actually a continual playing out of that first violence done in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, uh, casting off his care and his rule and then turning on one another as their children turned on each other. You know, it's interesting, Psalm 2 is perhaps uh, the most quoted and referenced chapter in the Old Testament in the New. The New Testament writers quote this psalm uh, more than any other. We can take from that the cue that in their minds, this question is the question that Jesus comes to answer. Right, that Jesus, the question that Jesus comes to answer, why is the world the way it is, and what, if anything, can God do about it? 
that that question ultimately is answered in Jesus, right? That the primary question Jesus answers for us isn't the narrow question of how do I go to heaven when I die, but why is the world as broken as it is, and what does God intend to do with it? Which, of course, will have profound implications for our own souls, for our own life with God. But this question points us Uh, to the need for Jesus and for why he did what he did and why it matters. The first thing we want to look at in this psalm uh, is that this psalm shows us uh, that there is one who is enthroned in heaven, right? However else we might seek to answer the question, why is the world the way it is? That we can't go to the answer that some of us have been tempted to go to, which is, if the world is as broken as it is, certainly there cannot be a God in heaven, right? If the world is as broken as it is, then certainly there isn't a king ruling over this world. Because how could there be someone who's both powerful and good if the world is as it is? Psalm uh, 2 refers to God in verse 4 as he who sits in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens. That whatever else is true of this broken world, there is one who sits in heaven. Now, the Hebrew language that Psalm 2 and all of the Old Testament is written in is known for having single words that do a lot of different duty, right? Whereas uh, in English, we might have a single, a different word for multiple different things. Hebrew very often you have to take the cue of what the word means from its context, right? You kind of have to figure it out as you go. For instance, the Hebrew word for house, buy it. Uh, if I live in one of those, it's a house. If a king lives in a buy it, it becomes a palace. And if God lives in one of those, it becomes a temple. And your Bible will translate it different ways every time that it comes because the context provides it. Likewise, if I were to go down there and take a seat, I'm just sitting. But if a king sits, he's enthroned. And if one is sitting in heaven, then he is a king enthroned in the heavens. And so the worldview of Psalm 2 is one in which there is a stable king sitting on a throne. Notice his response, this one enthroned in heaven to the raging of the nations of this world. Right, The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. Right? He laughs at what's going on. It's the image, I think, uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is one of my, I have two boys, six and nine years old. Now, the nine-year-old is getting big enough that when we wrestle, he can actually do a little bit of damage. You know, he can, and, I, and I'm getting old enough uh, that a back injury is in the realm of possibility. Um, but for my whole life, one of the things they have loved to do is to wrestle. Right? And there's, a, there's something, there's a unique joy in being a dad, in watching my children at like four or five, giving me their best shot, wailing at me, heart, my youngest one is known to escalate such wrestling matches and jump from bunk beds and things like that. But he's giving, he is out to hurt. And yet I'm able to laugh uh, because I outweigh him by a couple hundred pounds, Right? <laughs> And so that's the image that's that's going on here is that God is not in the least threatened by the raging or the conspiracy or the violence or the rebellion or the sins of this world, that he remains seated in heaven, unperturbed by their wailing and their violence and their conspiracy. 
because there is one enthroned in the heavens. And when our lives are hard and when we're suffering and we see chaos all around us in the news, it's hard for us at times to believe that there really is one enthroned in the heavens, right? That there really is one who's giving moral order to this world. And yet the scriptures from beginning to end tell us that God made us in his wisdom. He ordered our world by his care, that he does still rule even when everything looks contrary to it. Because while there, are, while there is a king enthroned in the heavens, there are other kings as well uh, in this story. The ones who are identified to us here as the kings of this earth. Right, the first verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, God ordered the world in such a way that all authority belongs to him. He rules on the throne. But then he does rule through delegated authority. Right? We're told that Adam and Eve uh, were created to be king and queen in the garden. Right? They were made to exercise dominion over the earth under God's lordship. Right? So he's the great king, but then he rules his creation through men and women. And as human societies develop, leaders arise within that. Kings and queens and presidents and chiefs. Right? And in God's ordering of the world, things were meant to work. Right? If men and women, Adam and Eve, had lived their life under God's lordship and worship and in obedience, it would have gone well for the creation under them. If kings and chiefs and presidents lived their life in humble submission uh, to the great king, acknowledging that all of their authority was on loan and they were stewards of it, then life would have been good for their villages, for their tribes, for their nations, for the world. But because of sin, all of that gets turned upside down. Right? Remember, Adam and Eve didn't want to live ordered under God's kingship. But they said, we want the knowledge of good and evil, right? We want to order our own lives. Every other human being since them, including the rulers, right, including chiefs and kings and princes and presidents, have said, you know what, I, I have the power, right? And I want what I want. I don't want to live with my power under the power of another king. So they said, as, there, as it said here, let us throw off their cords from us. Right, the image here is of, a, uh, is of a, a team of animals that are yoked together, throwing off the yoke. Right, saying we don't want to be led, we don't want to be guided, we don't want to live our lives in submission to a higher authority, to a higher king. And so we continue to play out that same drama that began in Eden, of humans desiring sinful autonomy against God. Each man and woman believing that we're looking out for ourselves. Each people and culture and nation believing that ultimately we are looking out for ourselves. And so the peoples, the kings, the rulers wage war against one another. They compete with one another. The people who live under them end up living lives marked by poverty and oppression and violence. And yet God has a plan. He has his king. If you look, we'll pick up there again after verse 4. He who's enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king 
on Zion, my holy hill. See, God's plan was this. Sometimes God uh, works directly and miraculously in the world. Right? Sometimes God works miracles. He does things without human intermediaries. Right? But in this story, his plan wasn't just to work autonomously and supernaturally to overthrow the kings of this earth. Right? Sometimes we wonder right? when, when, you're, when you find yourself under an unjust ruler or looking at unjust rulers, going, why doesn't God just do something about this? Right? Why doesn't God just change, uh, change the situation? But his plan, he says, is not to to overthrow all of the kings of the earth in an instant, but instead to install his king, the man who's called here his anointed. Anointed is the the Hebrew word Messiah, uh, the word that we get Messiah or Christ from, right? That he will place his anointed, his king, his chosen king on Zion, that is the mountain of Jerusalem. And from there, he will spread the Lord's dominion over the face of the earth. He will bring the sinful and rebellious kings of this world under him in subjugation and loyalty. This word anointed becomes a reference point by which Israel describes their kings. Also at times, their prophets and their priests, but it remains primarily the anointed is primarily a king, a desired king. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, where David, Israel's greatest king, is made king, where he's chosen uh, to be king, we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. So Samuel the prophet pours oil on the head of David, and the Spirit comes on David to empower him to be God's chosen king for his people, ruling in obedience to God. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, We believe that Psalm 2 was written by David to be used as the coronation hymn for all of the subsequent kings of Israel. Right, that it was written by David, the one who received this promise of God's anointing, not only on him, but also on his son Solomon, and on all of the subsequent kings in David's line. And that this, uh, that this psalm in particular is the one that would be used at the royal enthronement ceremony. That it would be a hymn to celebrate the ascension of the next king to his throne. That there would be parts where they would call out the promises of God and the response of God. Where the new king would answer. He has some lines coming up in just a minute. But that this was the psalm. Uh, that marked in Israel's life those moments of anointing a new king, a king that they hoped would rule like their father David under uh, obedience to their God. Which casts uh, some interesting light, doesn't it, on the fact that this is the psalm that's most often used of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. right? Because this psalm does start to build uh, the job description for what a Messiah is and what a Messiah does, right? That a Messiah comes into a world marked by sin and violence and division, and he comes to be the true king, the true anointed one who will order the world under his kingship, under his lordship, and finally bring the kind of peace, the kind of harmony, the kind of of worshipful uh, living before God that was always intended uh, to be the order of this world. 
If you look at Acts chapter 4, that's the first place uh, that the New Testament writers quote uh, this psalm. Some of the uh, apostles have just been uh, arrested and now released. Uh, And after they're released, this is the first persecution of the church that we encounter in the book of Acts. And so after these men, uh, including Peter, have been arrested, they're released and they go back to meet with the rest of the disciples and they go first to pray. And so I'm going to read Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now this was the shocking part. Uh, for the New Testament writers, for the early Christians. They expected the rulers of the earth to align themselves against God and his anointed. Right? The gospel writers are clear in the way they tell the story. Right, When Jesus is born and Herod finds out about it and goes on his murderous quest to kill all of the firstborn, right? all, all the babies that were born at that time, right? that's the raging of the rulers. When Pontius Pilate commits Jesus uh, to capital punishment, to crucifixion, That's the rulers of this earth conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. What would have been shocking here and scandalous and tragic is that the rulers of Israel show themselves to also be those rulers of the earth that are aligned against God and his anointed. Right, that the the leaders of Israel conspired with Pilate to have him killed. And now the priests of Israel are arresting these early disciples and questioning them, and will ultimately lead to the death of many of them. Right, but that this is, in their mind, the latest chapter in this long story of God working against the sinful rulers of this earth to establish his king in his kingship on his throne. The other, one of the other beautiful passages where this chapter is referenced is in Romans chapter 1. You know, we ask the question, if this psalm is meant to be about Jesus, right? If this psalm is a story and a song that's applied to Jesus, right? When does Jesus become king? Right? He says here in the psalm, today I have begotten you. Right? Today, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession. So in one sense, we can say that when did the God the Father beget God the Son? That's an eternal question, right? We know that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, as we confess, right? But what's in view here isn't uh, just that. It's not the the, the eternal begetting of the Son, right? We know that Jesus will return as king, but what's being talked about here isn't his return. Look at the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. 
Concerning his son, starting in three, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Right, so you see what Paul's saying here is that in one sense, yes, Jesus is the eternal son of God. In one sense, he's always been king. But in another sense, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God, which is a royal title, at his resurrection and at his ascension. Right, that it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's his triumph over death. It's his ultimate uh, unspoiled by death, unconquered by death, ascending in his body to rule creation at the right hand of God the Father. That we look at and say, oh, this is the divine Son. This is the anointed. This is the king. And if you catch what that means, that means that we're not waiting for Jesus' kingdom to come. We're not waiting for for his return to become king. That Jesus really is presently reigning over this world as the resurrected son of God. That the kingdom, as he said in his earthly life, is near. The kingdom of God is here. It's among us that we live in this world of contested kingdoms, of broken kingdoms. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God under his rule. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us today to live in the present kingdom of God? First, it means that the world is going to continue to rage, and we can and should expect that, right? That we should expect that as the kingdom of God grows, that we will still live in a broken world where the nations of this world groan and wait and long for, for a real and peaceful kingdom to come. Right, that this world will be marked by suffering. The Apostle Paul tells us that it groans awaiting its restoration. We should expect things to be hard. We should expect suffering. We should expect unjust rule. We should expect warfare and poverty and violence. That this is what it's going to mean to live in this world where Jesus is already king, and yet his kingdom is is existing, uh, is invisible reality, not yet fully made known. We should expect for the church to have to live as a faithful minority in this world, right? That we will very often uh, not have access to the halls of power. Very often this world will not go the way that we wish that it would go that we will live our lives, many of us, as a faithful minority in a world that, uh, as the psalmist tells us, resists God and his kingship. If you just look around the world today, you see this to be true. Right in Nigeria this past week, there was a story of 50 Christians, 50 Christians killed in their pastor's home, uh, killed by Boko Haram. I have friends who've been missionaries in India, believing that to be their calling, who, uh, after we graduated seminary, moved to India and have lived there for about 10 years, who've now been expelled from the country, uh, along with most other Christian workers in that nation, uh, as the Hindu government begins to consolidate more and more power and make it harder and harder uh, to live as a Christian in the nation of India. Uh, We've seen over the last several months and several years the increasing pressure on the Chinese church, arrest and persecution, uh, even torture. Uh, for the Chinese Christians. And friends, the fact of the matter is, this is the norm for most Christians who've lived throughout most of history 
around most of the world. Right? We should expect that this can happen. We can, ex- we can expect in our day and age that we continually, even in the Western world, are being asked to live as a counterculture within the world, a, co- a counterculture for the world's good. And the nations uh, will continue to rage. But we live as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, marked as citizens of this world, but supremely as citizens of our King, ordering our lives by His rule and His reign and His commands, even in the midst of unjust rulers. So that's the first thing we should expect. The second thing we can expect is that the kingdom of God goes forward as people pledge submission and obedience to King Jesus. Right, that his kingdom does go forward. Look at the way this psalm ends. I love this. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what he's narrowly describing here is the response that's expected from the rulers of this world, right? If you are a king of this world and you find yourself hearing the good news that there is another king, that Jesus is enthroned as the king, what's expected of you is that you repent and that you lay your crown at his feet, that you kiss the sun. That's that's an image of an ancient Near Eastern king bowing in front of a greater king and kissing the ground in front of him is a sign of his his humility, of his loyalty, of his commitment to say, you're the king, I'm going to follow you, right? Even my kingship is going to be ordered under you. And we see this throughout the history of, of the Christian church, that what the Christian church asks of rulers, right? It's, we're not after a fusion of church and state. We're not after taking over the government, right? But that what, what should happen as the kingdom goes forward, as evangelization happens in the world, is that we should long for and hope and and pray for and evangelize towards the conversion of the kings of this earth. That a good king, according to the Bible, is a humble king. A good king is one who says, I'm a king kind of, but he's the king really. That the mark of a virtuous king is humility. It's saying that my kingdom, my nation, is not ultimate in this world. That nations come and go, they rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. My rule and reign will come and go. Right now I'm king or president, one day I won't be. But one day, just like every other human being on earth, I'm going to be asked to give an account before the king of kings with what I did with what was entrusted to me. And so the psalmist calls on the kings of the earth to kiss the son, to acknowledge his greatness, and to pledge loyalty and allegiance to him. And friends, that is the same call that comes to every man, woman, and child on earth, right? Kings aren't special in this regard. Presidents aren't special in this regard. That every one of us, the determining factor of our lives is whether or not we bow before the king, whether or not, as as the psalmist says, we kiss the sun. You know, in our day and age, I think this is a beautiful picture and a needed corrective for what faith really is, right? We tend to think of faith as belief. Right? Faith is when you think of something in your mind and think, oh, that's true. We give some kind of uh, mental assent to believing something is true. And that's a part of faith, right? Faith has a mental component. Other times we think of faith as a purely emotive, subjective response. 
right? The, the band played a song and I was cut to the heart and I walked to the aisle, right? That faith is this emotional movement. But here, the psalmist describes faith as allegiance, right? That faith is loyalty. That faith is saying, yes, I believe it to be true in my mind. Yes, my heart is moved to believe that it's true. But faith is laying down my life at the feet of Jesus and saying, you have the right to command every bit of my life. What you say about my love life, I'm going to take. What you say about what I do with my body, I'm going to take. What you say about what I do with my money and my family and my thoughts and my vision, all of that is now laid here. And that my life is going to be one marked by loyalty to a new king. No longer seeking to be my own king, my own queen. I'm going to order my life in submission. Submission to Jesus. And then finally, the incredible, incredible hope of this passage is that the nations of this world already belong to Jesus. And that he spreads his reign and his rule over the world through the church. Think about this, right? Jesus took those who were rebellious against him, those who did seek to kill him, those who, who, who tried to throw off his rule. And he said, not only am I going to extend mercy, not only am I going to give you grace and clemency, but I'm now going to use you to be my mouthpiece, to be the voice and the hands and the feet of my kingdom around the world. So the way the psalmist puts it is that in, in what we think uh, the way the psalm worked in the coronation ceremony is that somebody would read uh, the God part um, where he says from four to six where he ends with, as for me, I've set, on, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the new king would say this, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So you see what the way it works is that God places him on the throne. He says, you are my son, you are the king. And then the king has to ask God for his inheritance, right? So one of the things that God wants in a king is that he be a prayerful king, that he be a humble king. So the king has to ask, God, give me the nations. Give me my inheritance. Because they knew and understood that this was the inheritance of Israel, that God had promised Abraham in his covenant with Abraham that his descendants would fill the earth, be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that the whole world would be blessed through his blessing. Then he promised Moses a particular land from which he would spread this kingdom. And then he promised David and his descendants one day that they would rule the entire earth, no longer just a little tiny province in Palestine but that he would ultimately rule the entire earth. So with that in mind, we look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. The, ascended, or the resurrected Jesus right before his ascension. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, I'm already the king. I'm already enthroned. I've already been given the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Get how amazing this is. 
God uses us, ordinary Christians, ordinary churches, churches like ours where you you know, struggle to get your kids dressed into church on time, where you struggle to wonder who's going to be in the nursery today, where you're trying to make sure the slides match the sound, and all, we're all the normal, broken churches. And the church is the answer to the son's prayer to the father for the gift of the nations. The son asks the father, give me the nations. And the father says, okay, here's the church. The church will go into all nations, right? Last I checked, the people in this room, we don't speak Greek and Hebrew to one another, right? We are an answer to this prayer, right? This tiny band of Christians that started off in Israel speaking Hebrew and Greek to one another now speak English and Chinese and Arabic and Swahili and all of the nations of the earth because Jesus is extending his rule and his reign. The church is the answer to the prayer of the Son that he be given the nations. And God is answering that prayer around the world today. And the story ends with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne of the Lamb, offering their tongues, their voices, in his praise forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the world's true king, Lord, you are certainly a savior for sinners, but you are more uh, than just a personal savior. You are more than just someone who gives us the assurance of our eternal life. That would surely be enough. But Lord, you are the hope of the whole world. You are the one whose rule will stretch from sea to sea. You are the one who demands and commands the love and honor and worship of all people. Lord, we thank you that in the end, you will receive your due. You will receive praise and glory from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, we pray that in this day, in our day, that we would come to find our life in submission to you, that we would find the refuge uh, under your reign that is true blessing. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, your mouthpiece and your ambassadors as we make your invisible reign visible, your invisible kingdom known in our world, in Jacksonville and around the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.